your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Well, today's guest did not suffer in silence with PTSD. His writing and counseling helped him to sort it all out. Well, hello, this is Catherine, host of Your Positive Imprint, the variety show podcast featuring people all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievement. Exceptional people are rising to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. You can learn more about Chris and listen to his music at chrisknoll.com, C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint, Twitter, What's Your PI. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Follow me on my YouTube channel, Your Positive Imprint. Check out my website where you can also listen to the episodes, yourpositiveimprint.com, or listen from iHeartRadio, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or of course, your favorite podcast platform. And do me a favor and follow or subscribe to this podcast. And remember, this is a free podcast, Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? Stuart L. Scott. Stuart, hello. Good morning. <laughs> I have been looking over your books, and they're they're very exciting. I, I was having a conversation with you just a few minutes ago. These books, I, I first want would like you to just give the names of the titles. The first book is a novel. It's a historical romance, and the title of the novel is Prisoners of War. The second book is a collection of short stories, and its title is Gritty grisly and greedy. Stories inspired by true crooks and crimes from my 28 years as a Fed. Stewart is a former CID special agent. He investigated felony-level crime across the Army, including forensic laboratory investigative support, which is much like crime scene investigator, or as we know it, CSI. Well, CID agents also provided protective services for key Department of Defense members, dignitaries, senior Army leadership, and others. I was uh, persuaded to go back in the Army Reserve <laughs> into the Army Criminal Investigation Command, which is the FBI for the Army. So I did that between 1980 and 2003 when I retired. And during that time, I had a variety of experiences. I was heavily involved with uh, the Protective Service Unit, which if uh, anybody has ever seen the Secret Service, we're the counterparts, and so we were the personal security officers guarding dignitaries, the Secretary of Defense, so I've been involved in guarding Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, Myron Cohen. Worked with General Powell once and, and uh, General Shelley Kashvili and different people. So we would guard the Secretary of Defense, the Chief of Staff, um, the Secretary of the Army, and foreign counterparts. So I had done that. You have to be able to follow directions. You have to be able to understand the goal, and especially in the protective service work, and, and in the protective service work, it's 
not like the movies. Uh, it, it's not Kevin Costner protecting Whitney Houston. What you're doing is, if necessary, like the Secret Service, you're the person that has to take the bullet, but it's protecting the principal. So it might be covering somebody's body, it's pushing them into the limousine and just trying to engineer environments so that you don't need to put yourself or the principal at risk. So it's a lot of... Quick thinking. Uh, quick thinking, planning, and I suppose that maybe the key word would be judgment, knowing what to do or, or what not to do. Stu served in Vietnam and he served in the first Gulf War, but it was events as a CID agent in which Stuart succumbed to post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as PTSD. And listen to his explanation of PTSD following his short account of one haunting investigation. I was sent to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and one of the crimes I investigated was the lead investigator on the scalding assault of a child. Lots of folks have some case or cases that haunt them in a way you can't get out of. And it was very difficult to be interviewing the parents and doing things like talking to the doctors and getting the pictures of this scalded little boy and interviewing the mother and measuring the water temperature that had come out of the taps and things like that. And so ultimately, uh, while getting some services with the VA after I retired from the Army late in 2003, um, I was introduced to a therapeutic modality and it's called journaling. And it's something that there's many ways to deal with PTSD issues. And PTSD comes lots of people in lots of different ways. It's not just the military. But writing down and getting feelings out so that you're not alone in sharing things with people. So journaling was very helpful to me. And that's one of the things that got me involved with writing. And a number of the incidents, including the case of the scalded little boy, ended up being referenced in some of the writing that I've, I've done. So that kind of ties some of those things together. And besides the journaling for myself, I also sought out some additional counseling and it, it's a, a specific technique developed at Stanford that has to do with dealing with recurrent uh, unpleasant thoughts things that you can't control. And there's an acronym for that which at, at the moment eludes me. It's EDMS, I think. Again, I perceived a need and I saw no reason if there was some help out there. Uh, suffering in silence doesn't get you anything. So the writing was one way I dealt with it and getting more counseling to deal with the intrusive thoughts was a, another thing. And between those two, these are things that really are not problematic for me anymore, I'm very happy to say. And it's, you know, it's so gratifying. And one of the other stories I told you is that I'd also been a commercial winemaker for 28 years. And so one of the most flattering things that can happen is when strangers are willing to give you money for something you did. Yes. And <laughs> that includes buying a copy of one of your books, buying a, a bottle of your wine, buying some of the uh, the glass artwork that I do. All of those things are just very reinforcing. 
After working through his PTSD issues through writing therapy and other therapies, Stuart learned that he is a storyteller. After writing gritty, grisly, and greedy stories inspired by true crooks and crimes from my 20 years as a Fed, he published his second book, which also helped him to better understand himself. His second book is Prisoners of War. Two things that are probably central to the writing of the book. In a way, it's a compilation of my story and some family stories. And what I mean by that is that my parents, as younger people before they were married, happened to be at significant places accidentally. And some examples that unfortunately we're not good with history as a society and a lot of things are lost. But two quick examples. Maybe you've heard of or a true event was that in February of 1942 a Japanese submarine came up in the Santa Barbara Channel very close to the coast and shelled an oil field in Santa Barbara. My mother happened to be a secretary in the office of the oil company so that's something that's lost. The following day there's an event called the Battle of Los Angeles. Again little known now. The Battle of Los Angeles is the largest loss of life on the continent during World War II. What happened is very primitive radar following the attack by the Japanese the previous day. The radar said the Japanese planes are coming. They feared a repeat of Pearl Harbor. They blacked out the entire Los Angeles area, the San Fernando Valley, and fired over 1,400 anti-aircraft shells into the air. Falling shells destroyed a number of homes, killed three people, and three other people died of heart attacks. My mother was there for that. Simultaneously, the man that my mother married had a cafe on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. He had told me, and my mother had agreed, and, they, and both of my parents ended up, turns out they came from the same little towns in northern Nevada. In the book, I'm trying to establish and give us an idea of just how scared the public could be, which enabled us to do something as unpleasant and unkind as incarcerating 120,000 of our own citizens. You have to understand the times. So part of the things that are lost now is the signs in stores that said things like no dogs or japs allowed. The fact that until it wasn't the summer of 1942 that the American government and the American public did not absolutely believe that we were going to be invaded. And the plan at that time, according to both my parents and my grandparents, was depending on where the Japanese landed, we'd stop them at the Grand Canyon or the Sierra Nevadas. So if you think about what will give you pause and, and just realize that there was no stopping an enemy except by a natural barrier, that's pretty scary stuff. That is, even today. Sure. So I took great pains to research and make sure that all of the information in the book is historically accurate. Two other quick family stories is I was engaged to marry a, a very lovely Oriental woman and that didn't work out uh, in large measure because of my behavior, but it didn't work out. 
And so this being a story of a Japanese-American girl and an American boy and, and what happens to their love story, and we expand and look at the topic of what would you be willing to do if the person you love the most in the world were sent to prison by your government for the crime of being Japanese. So that's what's investigated. One of the settings is at the Naval Weapons Plant at Keyport, Washington that produced our torpedoes. And I picked that site because my uncle, when he was drafted, and he had come, he was a machinist with the Western Pacific Railroad, was sent to work and spent the war building torpedoes there. So that's, that's the site of part of the story. But it includes my story. We've changed the time and the place more because uh, some of the people and some of the, the character-based folks are still living and so it was respectful to them to set a different time and place. But that's the story of Prisoners of War. Well, you're very dignified in telling this story. It warms my heart. Thank you. Uh, this is truly, truly an honor to be here and to be here in person. And now, aside from your heart being broken with the loss of your love, have you ever been injured in the line of duty? Uh, Nothing serious. Fortunately, fortunately not. I've, I've been very lucky in all of my careers that I've never had to fire my gun. I've almost done that. And of course, part of, like we talked about with the protective service work, it's, it's about good judgment and knowing what not to do. And sometimes not doing something is better than, than doing something. So I've been very lucky in that regard. Other roles for Stewart have been a federal parole agent and federal probation officer in California with events that would also later plague his thoughts, hence PTSD. When I started that in 1975 in San Francisco, they were two separate agencies, the Department of Justice and the federal court. And I started in San Francisco and had been involved in writing the sentencing reports and sometimes doing supervision on some people that you may be familiar with, including I was one of the, uh, the authors that worked on the Patty Hearst investigation. Sarah Jane Moore, who took a shot at uh, our president. I came to Idaho and I was involved in the Randy Weaver case. Uh, I thought that I would be leaving something complicated in California and coming to a, a quieter backwater and rocked into the middle of all of the Aryan nations. So I, I provided supervision and did investigative work and Richard Butler, the leader of the Aryan Nations. I did the sentencing report on one of uh, the two men that killed uh, Daniel Berg, the uh, Denver talk show host who was uh, Jewish faith. He was killed. I'd interviewed uh, Robert Matthews, the founder of the Order. So I've been very involved with different people, was involved with uh, Timothy Boyce, who was memorialized in the movie The Falcon and the Snowman, things like that. So have come across some cases or been involved with things that have been in the public eye from time to time. To me, that would be stressful. Yes, <laughs> it, it was. Earlier I said PTSD, folks just associate that with, with combat veterans. 
but there's lots of ways so that all kinds of first responders also have PTSD issues. And I'm sure people in vastly different and unrecognized aspects of life, uh, but a lot of parents have it. But it's just, it shows itself in many different ways. With me, it was intrusive thoughts and what's called hypervigilance. Just always sitting with my back to something and keeping my eyes moving and not being very, very trustful. But those were just how things manifested for me. So there's, there's lots of different ways. Not only are Stu's positive imprints in his storytelling, which is entertainment, but his positive imprints are also as a mentor helping those suffering from PTSD. But what surprised me was a positive imprint that is not associated with PTSD, and I feel it is important to mention with regard to his work as a parole and probation officer. You know, some of the folks had made mistakes, and I guess part of what I learned is that there was a segment of the folks that I dealt with that realized their mistake and weren't going to do it again, and so there I was kind of doing a monitoring function. There was an equal segment that if, uh, if Jesus Christ came down and touched them directly on the forehead, they still wouldn't have gotten any better. That was also monitoring and more surveillance. And so who I focused on was the 40% in the middle that could go either way. And trying to be not just a policeman, but also there if and when they wanted assistance so I could be a resource person. So I wasn't going to be their counselor, but when these 40% of the people that could go either way perceived that in their own mind, their life wasn't working, I was able to assist them in getting whatever they needed. It might be substance abuse counseling, it might be financial counseling, it might be uh, mental health issues, any of those things. And that's where I gave my emphasis. So I found at the end of my 23 careers as a probation and parole agent that it was very much a close to being a loving but strict parent. You had to deal with everybody on an individual basis and you didn't, you know, one size didn't fit all. You weren't trying to catch them and you weren't trying to excuse them. And so now uh, I'm currently involved. One day a week I do volunteer work with a local recovery center here in town. And there it's peer counseling with folks that have substance abuse issues, mental health issues. And one of the reasons I do that is I absolutely believe that the idea that, uh, listen, we're going to lock those people up, we're going to send them away, and that's going to make society a better place and make me safer. Plainly put, that absolutely doesn't work because there's very few people I've dealt with who don't come back to the same place where they were when they committed their crimes. Everybody comes back, and if they do come back, it's then a question of, did they come back better able to function in society or not? And if you want to make people better at society without necessarily excusing them, you can't just lock them up. You have to deal with their issues. And even if uh, people still have problems, because we're all fallible human beings, if you can make them a little bit more functional in society, Ultimately, 
because they're still our neighbors. We're still seeing them. That's better for all of us. So I'm trying to actually practice that by being involved and, you know, I give them, uh, I make donations, but the biggest thing I can do is actually support the work by giving them my time. And I've been doing that for about two and a half years. That's great. What a positive imprint that you've been for the community, the global community. And now you're taking all of what you did for so many years and you're still applying it and being that positive imprint here within your own community. And I, I thank you for that. I've been very lucky. I'm married to the same wonderful woman for 45 years. And she is also a beauty. So <laughs> I don't know why beautiful women are, are hanging out with me, but I've been lucky in that, <laughs> in that regard. And uh, I've been involved with raising four kids, and uh, nobody's on anybody's caseload, so that's all good. At age 41, Stewart was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. With his positive attitude, support of his family, close friends, and good medicine, he recovered. He learned a new craft in the art of glassmaking. Every day, he looks forward to making positive imprints. I look forward to continuing with what I'm doing and, and changing and being creative and doing some things that leave an imprint and that may be a theme to the glass art which you've seen and the books is being involved with people in corrections it's important but it doesn't leave a tangible or visible reference of what you did and so everybody is not concerned about the last case that you had and, and how good things were. It was, what are you doing now? So what I'm doing now are things that are creative but also a little bit more enduring because they have a physical presence. And that might be uh, establishing a bit of a legacy for me. And that would, that would be nice to be well thought of and have the generations to follow, uh, my kids and my grandkids be be proud of me. That would be, that would be very nice. Stuart L. Scott will entertain you now with short readings from the books he has authored. First, Prisoners of War, followed by Gritty, Grizzly, and Greedy Stories. San Francisco, 1981. A knock at my front door interrupted the six o'clock news. My stomach contracted and my breathing slowed. Today could be the day the day that my past finally catches up with me. I listen for the sound of heavy boots on the stairs, for the righteous pounding on the door, for the deep authoritative voice calling my name. I already knew how I could have been found out. With all these years to think about my crime, I'd realized my one mistake. Had they finally followed the faint dusty trail I'd left in my wake? I'd spent 35 years living with guilt about the damage I'd done and the men I may have killed. The fear of discovery left my soul and psyche brittle. Paperboy, collecting for the Chronicle. False alarm, this time anyway. What filled my own head, though, were flashbacks during the day and dreams at night. Fifty-plus years of memories so vivid, so acute, I can't escape them any longer. I remember one particular Saturday evening. In a mere 25 days, I'd be married. Life seemed good, if not perfect, as I tapped the ashes from my pipe and closed out the day. 
December 6, 1941. We know that the protagonist has done something mm -hmm. that he's not proud of, that he worries that he's going to be caught, and also we've set the place and the setting. The west coast of California just prior to the beginning of the Second World War. So we'll skip ahead a little bit. This is going to be when we introduce the protagonist. This is San Bruno, California. San Bruno is now the home of YouTube is there. Oh. <laughs> and it's the town where I grew up, 10 miles south of San Francisco. I was a war baby, an only child. I'm Patrick Ellsworth McBride, born in 1920, almost exactly one year after my father came home from the war in Europe and married my mom. I grew up in San Bruno, a quiet suburb 10 miles south of San Francisco. At the north end of San Bruno, on the east side of the El Camino Real, was the Tanforan racetrack. The 12th Naval District headquarters was directly across the street. Tanferan's huge grandstand backed on the El Camino. Red, white, and blue pennants flew from what seemed like a million flagpoles lining the roof high above the chain-link fence that enclosed the grounds. When I was old enough to ride a two-wheeler, I'd leave home and ride my bike around town, turning at the tree-lined border of the naval property. I loved to ride under the canopy of tall, fragrant eucalyptus that stood at regular intervals along the route. On the opposite side of the road lay barren ground, stretching north as far as I could see. The gentle roll of the ground, bright orange with California poppies, reminded me of a poem that my father recited to me. In Flanders' field, the poppies below. Dad always followed the first line with a long pause. Where's Flanders, Dad? It's a place in Belgium I saw before you were born, son. The poem was written by a pal of mine, Johnny McRae. He died in the war. I'd ride all around the outside of the naval property and then turn south towards home. I'd stay on the wide, flat surface of the El Camino and follow it to my right turn at Genevan Avenue. Sakai's garden shop and nursery marked the corner. Then we'll continue a little bit and we're going to jump up to 1926. On September 10th, 1926, Mom drove me to my first day of school. Her hand on my shoulder, we walked from the car to the door of the school. She asked if I could remember to take bus number two home. I told her I would remember which bus to take. However, by the end of my first day, my mind went blank as I stood outside the school looking at the long line of buses. Mrs. Haley, my teacher, crouched down and looked into my panicked face. Where do you live, honey? I was momentarily struck mute. I knew the answer, but a little round-faced girl spoke first. All I could do was stare down at the folded cuffs of my new Farrah blue jeans. He lives on Chestnut Street, volunteered her small voice. Ah, is that right, Mrs. Haley asked me. I nodded, and she led me by the hand to bus number two. My helper followed, getting on the same bus. We sat side by side. As the bus drove along, I studied our route, trying to find comfort in familiar streets. Occasionally, I'd glance over at my companion. The pink ribbons in her hair matched the pink of her dress. Her shoes were white Mary Janes, and her socks had little pink ruffles. Her name was Beatrice Sakai. She showed me where to get off at the Cherry Street stop. 
My sitter's home was in sight, just two houses up Cherry Street. I watched B walk another block up to Maple Street and vanish. Somehow B knew me, but I didn't know her. So part of what you've seen there is we introduce the female lead. We talk about Tanforan because Tanforan was the place to where all of the Japanese Americans from the peninsula in San Francisco surrendered. They were housed in converted horse stalls until they were deported. And most of the Japanese from the Bay Area went to uh, a camp in Utah. However, the Sakai family ended up going to a camp in Northern California called Tule Lake. There were a total of 10 internment camps for Japanese Americans, and also we incarcerated Koreans at that time too. It's little known. At Tule Lake, besides being one of the 10 uh, internment camps, was the one segregation camp. So if you were a Japanese American who for some reason was felt to be a danger or non-compliant, you were sent to a camp within a camp, which was a barbed wire enclosure guarded by the army. And so that's where uh, the love of Pat's life and her family are going to end up. Why? For the crime of being Japanese. We're introducing the site and, as I said when we spoke before, just trying to have people understand how scared the level of fear, and unfortunately politicians still find that if you can't sell things by selling sex, fear is the other evergreen, the way to sell things. And uh, yeah, who thought we might be seeing that again today? It, this yeah. is, uh, it's a cautionary tale. We're gonna go to this one. I ought to be able to evoke a number of different emotions. Well, the titles, just the titles itself definitely invoke different emotions. A story as cold as a Spokane winter about what happens when a crook chooses the wrong victim. Uh, Idaho catch and release. <laughs> Husband and wife pornographers who give a new meaning to what's really a crime. <laughs> uh, uh, some of them definitely sound humorous and some of them sound like what is this crook up to it doesn't make any sense oh oh good i like the tooth fairy a lot and it's a story to where ultimately evil does get punished actually this is the one that had the reference to the case in fort sill oklahoma to where um i had the scalding case and the two young bank robbers Pinky is one nickname, and the other is called the Piper. And they're sitting in a yard at the Terminal Island Federal Prison, which is in Long Beach Harbor. And they've been mentored by uh, a professional longtime bank robber who finally got caught. And he's known as Fast Eddie. And Fast Eddie, every day after work, has been teaching him the uh, eight rules for being a successful bank robber. And so after getting the eight rules, <laughs> and we'll, we'll pick up that story. So we have Eddie, Pinky, and, and uh, Scotty, who's the piper, in the yard at Terminal Island. Fast Eddie's eight rules for success, intoned Scotty. Eddie, how did you finally get caught? 
The rules didn't fail me, if that's what you're wondering. My luck just ran out. I'm in San Francisco, and I just robbed the first interstate bank. I've got my escape planned, and the robbery went fine. I'm in and out in under two minutes. Fast Eddie, you remember? I've got one block to walk to the bus stop, and I'll be in the clear. Unbeknownst to me, there's a liquor store holding hold up going on up the street. The crook runs out and runs right over the top of me. We both drop our bags and soon we're fighting over all of the cash on the sidewalk. About that time, the police roll up. What are the odds of that? Eddie hung his head and the conversation paused. Then he eyeballed the silent pair. Okay, what happened to you? Scotty spoke up first. I got caught on my first job the Bank of Idaho in Boise. I had to wait in line. When it was my turn, I'd go up to the window and there's this old bag of a teller. Glasses, iron gray hair, no smile. I pass her my note and I was shaken while she read it. Finally, she looks up, stares at me with this hard look and starts shaking her head. I tap the note with my fingers like, pay attention to this. She looks bright in the eye and calls out, Next, sweet as you can be. Scotty rubbed the back of his head, clearly agitated at the memory. She's not taking me seriously at all. Like she's my third grade teacher, I just told her that my dog ate my homework. So I lean over the counter and reach into her cash drawer and start grabbing the money myself. She slams the cash drawer on my hand. I scream and pull out my busted hand and about a hundred bucks in bills. As I run out, I dropped all but $40. When I got pinched a block away, I'm still holding my hand, crying like a baby. It was a mess. Eddie just smiled and looked out towards the harbor. I guess it's my turn, and Pinky raised his hand up and out as he grinned in advance of an apology for the fiasco he was about to admit. I started in Spokane, my hometown. I was robbing the Washington Trust Bank. I passed my note in a brown paper bag. I was trying to keep one eye on the teller and another on the lobby. I looked away for just a second and when I looked back at the teller, she passed me a brown bag and I, I ran out. I got around the corner to my girlfriend's car and we got away. When I opened the bag, the teller had passed me her sack lunch. Oh. I got a banana, a bologna sandwich, and a package of ho-hos. Two days later, my girlfriend gets popped in the car and she gives me up so she can get off on a misdemeanor possession wrap. Eddie shakes his head and paces a fatherly hand on the shoulder of each con. What a pair you are. But hey, it's not your fault, Eddie laughs. You were probably not breastfed or you were toilet trained too early. Maybe you didn't get a hot lunch in school. Exactly, replies Scotty. We're just victims of social forces beyond our control. All three break into laughter at the sound of their own bullet. Oh my gosh. Stuart L. Scott, that is wonderful. <laughs> thank you, thank you. The robberies are all true. Those were all cases to where I did the sentencing report. And there is an update just this October 2020, Stuart came out with his third book, Spirit Lake 
Payback. And he is here on the phone where he's able to read some excerpts from this story. We'll call it the hook. It's a bit of a teaser. It's the beginning of a book. And the idea is to hook the reader and give them something that they can't resist. So that's what we've got here. And the book starts on June 10th, 1995. The Spokane newspaper article ran under the banner. Spirit Lake sinkhole collapses to reveal skeletal remains. Quote, state and tribal archaeologists are preparing to excavate the sinkhole, hoping to determine the province of the apparent ancient burial ground. Then, on June 30th, 1995, the Spokane paper continued. The Kootenai County Sheriff, in his lakeside press conference, revealed these remains appear to be 40 to 60 years old and not a tribal burial ground as we first imagined. The Coeur d'Alene tribal archaeologist called us in yesterday when he discovered a skull from the bottom of the pit and noticed gold fillings and gold teeth. Now, let's meet the three ladies of the lake. Mildred Mercer, when a former brothel customer threatens to reveal her secret past, her desperation and despair turn deadly. Bernadette Bagdasarian. She thinks she finally grabbed the brass ring on the merry-go-round of life. But her bigamist husband had another plan in mind. Find him, bet him, wed him, dupe him, dump him. She is not amused. Finally, Eleanor Greenberg. Eleanor entered Auschwitz as a child and survived because of the perversions of a Nazi scientist. From an Israeli assassin school, her deadly profession ultimately brings her to North Idaho, a hotbed of old Nazis and homegrown white supremacists. So, come dip your toes in the blood-warm waters of Spirit Lake and discover what happens before, during, and after revenge. Spirit Lake Payback. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Stuart L. Scott. Are, are these books available on Amazon? They are available okay. on Amazon as e-books or print copies. Okay. Yes. Stuart, again, thank you so much. This has been incredibly delightful. It has been very enlightening and insightful to the services that you've provided for so many years in so many different ways. Thank you for your positive imprint. My pleasure. Don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button now on your podcast platform and visit my website, yourpositiveimprint.com. Your Positive Imprint, what's your P.I.?